Coming up on this episode of the Mario Rosenstock podcast. Um, say hello to Matt, I think he's still holding. Matt, how are you? Hi Frank, how are you? Good, good, good. How come you never do any of these colour pieces with me? You're spilling your guts out to Mario in there and it's all just straight down the line rubbish with me. Ah, come on Matt. Well, come on now Matt. I, well, th- I thought we had an understanding. Well, an understanding, yeah, but I mean, uh, I'm listening to this, I find it riveting. Black and white, black and white on the last word and all the colours saved for Mario. If you listen to Today FM, uh, News Talk, or the excellent Inside the Crime podcast, you will be familiar with my guest today in the Mario Rosenstock podcast. He is Frank Greeny, and he is fast becoming one of Ireland's most respected and listened to courts correspondents. I love his interactions with Matt Cooper um, on The Last Word. They are often of an extremely serious nature, but somehow I endeavoured to flip that and see... Uh, if I could turn their interactions into a funny sketch, um, which people have, some people at least, have found funny. Uh, I certainly have. But when you hear Frank talk about what he does, the real Frank Greeny, uh, why he does it, and the cases that have made the most impact on him, you'll understand why he is so compelling to listen to. He really believes in what he is doing, and I find them to be a most empathetic broadcaster who seems to be deeply personally involved with what he's doing. In this chat, we cover so much ground and really get to know Frank in a way uh, we can't get to know him when he's reporting on the courts. Listen to this. You will spend the rest of your life trying to figure out why people do what they do. I mean, what drives two 13-year-old boys to kill a 14-year-old girl for no other reason than they wanted to kill somebody? I mean, try get your head around that. One of the reasons I do what I do is because of my dad. He, you know, he really did love true crime, these court dramas that I used to watch with him as a kid. And uh, he really loved what I did. And you have moments then during that trial where naturally you pick up the phone and you go to ring your dad and you realise, oh God, he's gone. If it wasn't for David Fitzpatrick, we would be in prison right now. We <laughs> Doing <laughs> crime reports on yourself. Would, yeah, yeah. I don't know who Matt would have to get yeah. on the show to talk about this, but I would definitely be in the dock. Frank, We'd I be. believe you're in the clanger <laughs> down there. <laughs> yes, Matt, the reception isn't great here, but hang <laughs> with me. Frank is also the presenter of the Inside the Crime podcast series. Season two is just out now, so well worth a listen. More from Frank shortly. But first, we're only days away from the Qatar World Cup. A lot of people making headlines, including David Beckham and Joe Lysett, the comedian, threatening to burn £10,000 of his own money if David Beckham doesn't, um, doesn't quit his association with the Qatar World Cup. Other people who've made the headlines are Gary Neville. Gary Neville also taking Qatari money, even though he has claimed he is a protester about the human rights violations in Qatar. Um, He was caught out quite badly, I suppose, on Have I Got News For You when he was the presenter of that programme just last week. And so it begs the question, how is Gary Neville going to combine those two duties? That of commentator taking Qatari money at the World Cup and that of protester. We had a look. England three, Iran one. I'm joined by Gary Neville and Roy Keane. Roy Keane, that was a superb performance by England. Yeah, absolutely. Great start for England. I think it's going to be a great World Cup at the end of the day. Gary, 
fantastic goal for England. I'm really looking forward to this World Cup in a country which has violated human rights at an unprecedented scale, what? bringing repression and horror to thousands of people with their medieval regime. But yeah, absolutely super header from Harry Kane. R Roy, was it a penalty, do you think? Yeah, An I mean, absolutely stonewall penalty at the end of the day. You can clearly see here, look, the lad is linking arms with him. Gary, what did you think? Was it a penalty? Absolutely agree with Roy. I think... He's lucky it's only a penalty. Why, Gary? Why do you say that? Because if he's caught linking arms, Raheem Sterling, if he's caught linking arms outside the stadium, right. the merciless, authoritarian and draconian Sharia laws that apply in this jurisdiction Gary. would have treated the lad differently. He would have been subjected to seven years in prison. Gary. Or worse, torture, stoning or even death. But yeah, I think the referee got it just about right. Definitely a penalty. Roy, this was a super free kick by Trent Alexander-Arnold. How did he do it? It was yeah, obviously all credit to uh, Belters. This is a Belter at the end of the day. Look at this. He gets it up and he gets it down over the wall. Superb execution. Gary, was the wall big enough in your view? Speaking of executions and oh, walls, Jesus. building walls resulted in the execution Gary. of thousands of slave labourers in this pathetic, appalling, humiliatingly bad wasteland of a country. But yeah, Gary. that was an absolutely superb kick by, you know, Tre Terence Trent, uh, Alexander Arnold. Roll thank, on thank, England thank you, in Gary. this absolutely disgusting, autocratic dump of a place. Thank you, Gary. <laughs> Yes, all eyes will be on Gary Neville over the next few weeks and indeed Roy Keane. And even though uh, a lot of us might feel pretty bad about that World Cup, I'm sure we will end up tuning into it anyhow. But first, time to meet Frank Greeny. You might be very familiar with him from the court reports he does on The Last Word and on News Talk. But I promise you will get to know Frank in a wholly different way here on the Mario Rosenstock podcast. Brilliant storyteller. Great voice, deeply driven. He's also becoming one of my favourite Gift Grub characters. And that's where we started the chat. So Frank, it's great to have you on the Mario Rosenstock podcast and you're very welcome. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on, Mario. Yeah, no, I'm delighted. And of course, coincidence that I have you on as well because it's only in the last few months that I started uh, doing you, as it were, on the radio. Uh, and uh, and uh, when you first saw your name pop up on Twitter or something, you must have gone, What? What the hell is going on here? What you, you must have wondered what what could this be before you heard the first sketch? Were you kind of wondering what's this thing? I'll tell you an even better one than that. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I was I was perplexed. Um, the other day when the first episode of Inside the Crime came out, and we've been working on this for weeks and months, and it's a very tragic tale. I won't go into the details a little bit later, maybe. But I get a phone call from my sister and she is roaring her head off. She was in the car. She said, oh, my goodness, I just listened to your piece. It is hilarious. <laughs> and me having not heard the Ian Dempsey show that morning, I assumed she was talking about the podcast. I was bolted up in the bed. I was like, oh, my goodness, this is all wrong. What have we done? Yeah. Ashley and I almost contacted our yeah. producer. The last Ashley thing people Moore. should be doing is laughing yeah. at your work. Take it down, take it down, take it down. Yeah, no, but um, it's it's funny the amount of people that get in touch with me when they hear the gift club. And it's brilliant. It's a fantastic platform to tell stories. And it's it's really cleverly done. And I'm not just saying that because you're seated a couple of yards uh, away from me. But the one that really sticks out for me is Ronan Keating. That was the original I one. 
Today FM. Right, let's go over now to our courts correspondent, Frank Greeny. Good evening, Frank. Hi, Matt. This is a particularly gruesome case. That's right, Matt. Listeners who are particularly sensitive might want to turn off their radio now. No, there's no need for that, Frank. Tell us about the defendant there, yeah? Yes, Matt. Well, mm-hmm. the defendant is a male Caucasian, 44 years of age, originally from Dublin, named as one Ronan Keating. What is he accused of? Frank. Mr. Keating was accused of hijacking, torturing and murdering up to 12 songs in an orgy of musical violence over the last few weeks. Disgusting. Where were the songs from, Frank? The songs were from all over Ireland, Matt. Mm. Many of the songs were respected local songs, well-liked in their communities. Many were loved and adored by the people who knew them before Keating savagely and brutally murdered them. How were the songs murdered, Frank? Mr Keating, it is said, took the 12 songs into a studio. He then brandished a microphone and using a recording device and only his voice systematically left the songs for dead. Most of the songs were killed instantly. Some of the songs struggled in vain before succumbing finally to Keating's repeated monstrous attacks. The targets were different ages? That's right, Matt. One victim known only as Guiding Light was still relatively Yes, young. I listened to it on the Lewis on the way into work and it set me up for the day. I was belly laughing. It was just um, fantastic. And then inevitably when you get into court, and this has happened a couple of times where you get a tap on the shoulder from a lawyer and that's never a good sign. And they heard you this morning. And again, I'm <laughs> sitting there bricking it. And it's, it's, it's usually about, uh, about gift grubs. So no, they're, they're going down a treat, fair play. And I really love the way Matt seems to be getting even more incensed when I give him that graphic content warning. As the episodes go on, he's getting angry and angrier when I, when I give that warning. Yeah, the two things that people seem to react most to about the sketch are uh, the idea of who'll be the culprit, who'll be the, the, the bad person. And then they love your, well, the way I do you anyway, is this, is this, is this matter-of-fact delivery you have of explaining to, to Matt uh, the, the extent of the person's crimes. But then the second bit they love is when Matt completely loses it when you try to say, now listeners will want to turn off their... No, don't turn off the radio! <laughs> Nobody will be turning off the shagging radio, greedy! So people <laughs> yeah. love that, 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 that he loses the it, biscuit. It's fantastic and as, as I said it just seems as they mm. go on that he's getting angrier and, and angrier. It's brilliant. No, I love it. And so the reason you're on the sketches is because uh, for a long time now you've been the court correspondent for Today FM and and I suppose the reason I put you on those sketches is because you 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 know you kind of you've made your mark in that area and it's 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 not just you know you or Matt it's obviously the subject matter as well the subject matter that you deal with Frank is is invariably harrowing um and it's it's tough to deal with. You you always warn people. You know, you guys at the start going. We warn you now that like the stuff you're about to hear might be might be troubling to 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 people who are listening to it. Um, tell me a little bit about your with with a way into this area about your background. How did you get into? How did you find yourself getting into this area of life? Um, and how long have you been doing it? It's a good question. I mean. It's something that I guess I kind of um, fell into, but it was the right path for me. I just didn't know it. I mean, you don't grow up thinking someday I'm going to be on the radio talking about murder. No. Um, when I left school, I, I went to college to study corporate law. 
Um, so I went down the legal route initially. You know, you're 16 years of age and you're asked what you wanted to do with the rest of your life. And I hadn't a clue. And law was something for some reason that just appealed to me. And I went and I did it. I'd always watched like court dramas growing up with my dad. And um, I studied corporate law in NUI Galway. And I quickly realised, oh, hold on a second, this isn't quite like Matlock or Ali McBeal. There's no dancing babies. Where's everyone in white suits? <laughs> um, you know, it was like intellectual property law, tort law, um, commercial law. You know, there were certain aspects of it that appealed to me. And looking back, it's funny because... You know, you will do case law. When you sit down to do a legal examination, you're usually presented with a fictional scenario and mm. you will have to advise a client one way or another. And looking back, it's funny to think that what I found most interesting about these fictional case studies was, well, what happened next? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, clearly that didn't matter in an exam hall, mm. but I was always curious about the story. Um, I came out of college, I was 21 years of age with, you know, a degree in corporate law under my belt and I went travelling um, for a year or so. You know, I went to Australia to find myself like every other young backpacker in the country at the time. Mm. And when my year was up, I wasn't quite ready to come home. So I started traveling around Southeast Asia. I spent about six months traveling around Southeast Asia with a journal and I documented my travels and Mm. I went to Cambodia. I don't know if you've ever been to that part of the world, but Cambodia has a very special place in my heart. Mm. And I'm embarrassed to say that before I went over, I had never heard of, you know, the atrocities that happened there in the not so distant future with the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot. And And I started writing um, you know about all of these people that I'd met and about all of these stories about the Khmer Rouge and I was sending them back to the Irish Times and uh, <laughs> you know it's gas to think now you know, clearly none of them were, were published mm. but it certainly was a light bulb moment I found myself really enjoying meeting people you know writing about their experiences my experiences when I came home then I sat down I applied for a master's in journalism in NUI Galway high demand for the course I didn't get it the first time of asking because while I had all of this passion I had nothing to back it up. Um, So for the next year, I started writing for a local newspaper, uh, the Connacht Tribune. And I started writing the notes for my hometown. So, you know, you know, those local newspapers, those regional newspapers, you have the stories from around the towns and villages in that particular city and county. Well, I'm from Barna in, in Galway and I started writing the notes for for that and that was kind of my I suppose my first foray into journalism mm. and I still do it to this day um, for lots of reasons You still write the hometown Yes, notes. yes. Yeah, yeah I do um, for lots of reasons sentimentality um, but also it's a really good way to stay in touch and to know what's going on in, in your community I did an evening course a diploma in GMIT and like the traffic and go is horrendous and I used to be seated in my car this clapped up silver Toyota Corolla an absolute rust box stuck in traffic driving out to GMIT listening to Mac Cooper uh-huh. on the last word uh-huh. and I'd always Im- imagined myself when I started out on this journey to become a journalist I'd always imagined myself being a writer working for a newspaper but sitting in the car and I was often late for my lectures because Matt would have a guest on or he would have some toing and froing with a politician and I'd have to hear the end of it so I'd be sitting in the car and it's funny all these years later then to be a regular contributor 
on the show to occasionally fill in mm. format as a guest presenter. Mm. I never would have known that my career would have gone no. down that route. I was successful the second time of asking and getting the Masters in Journalism. Um, I went on to work in Goway Bay FM. I came out of college at the height of the recession. Goway Bay FM kept me on as long as they could. They gave me work when there really wasn't work for me to do. And when that eventually dried up, um, I kind of had a moment where I was like, okay, what, what am I going to do now? Mm-hmm. And... I decided to spend my last couple of bob on a clapped up laptop and a dodgy recorder and um, I went down to courthouse and I just started filing stories to any newsroom that had an email address and didn't get too many hits looking back. Um, and eventually I started to and I started to make a name for myself because I understood the language. I understood the legal jargon. I understood uh-huh. the lingo yeah. and I was able to put that together Um and eventually made the move to Dublin and, and you know, I'm doing this job for about 10 years now. Okay. I must say, you actually, that was such a thorough answer. You actually gave it in, almost in the style of a court report about <laughs> yourself. It was like, the man then was seen in a silver busted up Toyota Corolla, desperately taking notes to himself. Out of sentimentality and something of nostalgia, he still writes notes, he said to the court. The man then um, began to go to Barna. He then toured, he said, Cambodia. He wrote letters back to the Irish Times. The letters were unsuccessful, the man said, but later he said he would return to those. He said he used to hear Matt Cooper in his car, but never, ever dreamt that it could be one day him on the radio. Until finally, Your Honour, it was. And as Matt would say, (laughs) the monster. (laughs) Well, brilliant. Well done. And that's that's so so it became clear to you, I suppose, from a reasonably early age that you were definitely interested in people and stories. Is that right? Yeah, I think yeah. that's fair to say. A- absolutely. I think the one thing that surprised me was the medium to tell those stories. You know, I'd, I'd always imagine myself writing. I loved writing from a very young age. Mm. Um, so radio wasn't on my radar. Mm. And I remember going into a studio, radio um, studio booth in NUI Galway for the first time. And as soon as I did, I just fell in love with it. Um, it's such an intimate yeah, medium. You know, to do something like court reporting, which can and sometimes has to be quite clinical, but to be able to bring a person into that courtroom, to bring a person sitting at home into that story, um, I just really love that challenge. And you do. I hope so. And you really do. You actually do. I mean, the reason I probably did you on the radio or do you on the radio is because, you know, when you choose to do somebody on the radio, it's because in some way they stand out. You might not be sure why it is they stand out, but... Actually, now that you're explaining to me what you do, I think I'm, I'm beginning to get a hold of it. And one of those things is, although you, your discipline is to be, you know, rigidly impartial, you cannot cast an opinion or an aspersion in your reports. It's undeniable that you are still a human being and something of your humanity comes out in your reports, Frank. And I know you're not pushing it because you can't. But I think it's the depth of the investigation and the watching and the listening that you've done. And when I'm saying listening and watching, you may have listened, I'm guessing, but you may have listened to a court case for 20, 24, 30 hours, 40 hours. I mean, you're nodding your head, yeah? You could be listening for up to 40 hours. And I think the depth of inquiry, listening and fee- feeling you have after listening to it seeps through in on the radio. Now, I'm not, and, and, and to your, to your, to your benefit, to your, to your uh, credit, it's not as if uh, I'm, you're taking any sides, but it's just that you can see here is a man, you can feel it. Here is a man who's actually been listening to this stuff for 40 hours and it's made a huge impression on, on him. 
And that's what comes out in your reports. I suppose what I'm, lo- I'm saying is a certain amount of empathy comes out in your voice. And that, that's brilliant. I think people can feel this guy has to remain level and down the centre. But there's no denying you've seen what you've seen. Mm-hmm. You've heard what you've heard. Yeah. And like you are so restricted in what you can and can't say for all the right reasons. And I think where all of that really comes into its own is after the fact. And when I come on with Matt and when there's been a verdict or, you know, a family has got up and there has been a victim impact statement or they've spoken outside, I'm always conscious that this isn't my platform. This is their platform. Um, And there are like people often ask me, you know, are there any cases that stand out? And there are, but people are always surprised by the answer that I give. And there's one that stands out for me. It was in uh, the circuit court in Dublin. A company was held criminally responsible for a person who died down at the Docklands in Dublin. You know, those enormous cranes that move around pulling uh, containers off those large ships that come down the, the river. Well, this person was tragically crushed under one of those cranes. And because of a, a variety of reasons and um, safety signs and things like that, the company uh, that he worked for was held criminally responsible and they put their hands up. And there was a victim in this story, his wife, and she got up and she delivered a victim impact statement. And almost word for word, it has stuck with me to this day, um, where she described how they had a row the night before and they'd gone to bed angry. And the next morning, that hadn't abated. And usually he would give her a kiss goodbye before he headed off to work. And he approached the bed to give her that kiss goodbye. And she refused. And the next thing she knows, she's getting a phone call to say that he was gone. And like you're sitting there as a journalist. My hands were trembling. Um, taking down that note and just listening to what she was saying and listening to her recalling those memories, you know, of them buying their first house and dancing around a bare kitchen because there was nothing else to do, no televisions, nothing like that. And listening to this woman pour her heart and soul out to a room full of strangers and knowing then that Within the hour, I'm going to be going on to the last word to tell her story and desperately wanting to do it justice. And another thing that it does is um, it gives you an appreciation for life, for your own life, because, I mean, what she found out in the cruelest of ways is that life is precious and it can be gone in an instant. And listening to her recalling those wonderful memories that she had with her husband and will no longer have is just heartbreaking and you sit through that day in day out and as difficult as it is for somebody like me to get up off the press bench to talk to Matt Cooper to go home and close the door behind me I'm always mindful of of those people sitting in the witness box because they'll never get away from it. That's an extraordinary um, description of what you do and well done And, and actually one of the things I've taken out of that is it reminds you how precious life is and I suppose how precious your own life is and how maybe grateful you are for the the relatively brilliant life you have in comparison to somebody who who's experiencing this 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 horror oh wow that's that's amazing um so uh, leading on from that frank and i suppose it's 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 related is you know there's a lot of there's a, I was speaking to Mick O'Toole, Michael Mick O'Toole about this last week and he is a crime journalist with the Daily Star and he's also written a novel Black Light 
And he's gone through some, you know, hor- he's covered some horrific stuff, some of which have overlapped actually with stuff you've covered. Things like the um, the the, uh, the David Dwyer. Graham Dwyer. Dwyer. Yeah, Graham that Dwyer. was, um, wow. That, and that's a case that we're still talking about still to talking this day. About now. Yeah. And I asked, I asked him a similar question to see how you would uh, put, put it. But all of this stuff, you know, has an impact on you and it has an emotional impact on you. And I'm, and I'm just wondering if your profession is to see, to be exposed to large and large and large amounts of pain and trauma, uh, albeit vicariously through other people, do you know or can you tell if, if it has any effect on you whatsoever and on your outlook? I mean, you are seeing the life, th- you are seeing life through mm. a different lens than, than the average person. You're, you're exposed to a lot of third party or second hand, if you like, um, trauma. You know, yeah, and you and you and you are deep within it. You are living it as such. Uh, uh, you know, with them, like a, you are the listener. You're the first listener, and you are going. Then not only do you listen to it, then you digest it, you regurgitate it, and you present it again uh, to to a third and fourth listener, namely the radio. Or, mm-hmm. uh, and I was thinking, it, it it must have. I mean, the cliche is that you wake up at night and, you know, you're dreaming about some horrific thing. But, I mean, it must have some effect uh, on you in some way. Yeah. It's funny, the guys down in the newsroom um, would often refer to me as old Blackheart, you know, Hmm. that I can cover these dreadful stories day in, day out and seemingly unaffected. And the reality is that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, you would want to have a heart of stone not to be affected by these stories. You know, the more high high profile ones, you know, the Anna Kriagel trials, the Mr. Moonlight trials, you mentioned Graeme Dwyer, the Belfast rape trial. I spent three months living in a hotel room like Alan Partridge covering that trial. Which Belfast rape trial is this? The two rugby players who were ultimately acquitted of of raping a woman a number of years ago. That was back in... 2016. That was... The trial was heard in 20. 18 and you know I know we're gone a little bit off topic but Mm. I mean this was this was two weeks after my father had passed away and I got a phone call from my then boss Sinead Spain Mm. um, who I have the utmost respect and Mm. time for and she called me and she said look you know, the trial is around the corner. We obviously know you're going through, you know, you're grieving for your father and um, we don't expect you to cover this case at all. She couldn't have been kinder. But you know what? Like one of the reasons I do what I do is because of my dad. He, you know, he really did love true crime, these court dramas that I used to oh, really? watch with him as a kid. Yeah. And uh, he really loved what I did. And and I felt, no, it was important to, to go and, and to do that. And I figured, you know, we'd go up for the opening of the case and obviously get the complainant's evidence and then come back down to Dublin or go back to my family in, in Galway. But it was very clear from, from the very first day of that trial that this was going to be huge. This was going to be, you know, enormous. And you have moments then during that trial where naturally you pick up the phone and you go to ring your dad and you realise, oh, God, he's gone. And you do have moments uh, like that, but you're sitting through all of this horror and it never surprises me the level of depravity that human beings can inflict on one another. And you're sitting through like Anna Kriagel, you know, 14 years of age, um, bludgeoned to death by two kids for no other reason than they wanted to. And you're sitting through hours days, months of all that. But what I always think about is I can walk away from it. You look at uh, Anna's parents, her mum, Geraldine, her 
late father Patrick who passed away over the summer I sometimes sit there and I'm looking at them going how do they get beyond this know. you know, know. they're you, you sitting see, through that evidence yeah. and I mean I you see things live you see raw emotions live that very few of us really get to see mm-hmm. or sit through can you does does one or two stand out in your mind that just kind of went through your heart that just went Jesus I'll never forget what I just saw in that courtroom and it might have been might have been a glance mm-hmm. it might have been a glance a mother's glance up to the wall something to stick with you Anna Kriusha without a shadow of a doubt will be with me for the rest of my life um it was such a dreadfully tragic, sad case. And I know they all were, but I mean, this one in particular for lots of reasons. And I think, I mean, I have to pay tribute to Geraldine uh, and Patrick because they gave evidence during the trial. Oh, Her parents um, and Patrick sadly passed away a, a few mm-hmm. months ago. But Geraldine in particular, she sat into that witness box and she was giving evidence and what sometimes happens, what always happens during a trial is you get a one-dimensional view of a victim who is no longer there, no longer has a voice. And that makes sense when you think about it because all a jury is really concerned about is how they died and who was responsible. But what Geraldine did from the witness box and Patrick was they gave us a glimpse. A, a eulogy. Yeah, almost. almost a glimpse into the wonderful life that they had with with Anna and that really stuck with me and you mentioned a moment and I do remember sitting there during the post-mortem evidence post-mortem evidence if you have ever sat through it is cold it's clinical it has to be you know it's medical and they went through and it took the them state pathologist hours to go through it because there wasn't a mark you know there wasn't an inch of that girl's body that wasn't marked in some in some way and I mean you couldn't possibly go on the last word and go through it all just for taste and decency but Geraldine and Patrick sat through it all and they were warned before the evidence was heard that they could walk out of the courtroom if they wanted and they chose not to I just remember a moment when it got really tough and Geraldine squeezing Patrick's hands hand and her eyes were just tightly closed for the duration and I just wondered you know, what's going through her her mind and it haunted me afterwards. And you do carry those things. But again, I mean, people ask me how I am. I mean, at the end of the day, who cares? This is my job. And if I don't like it, I can look for a job elsewhere. The people that are at the forefront of my mind when I'm covering these cases are the Geraldine, the Patrick Creels of this world. You know, Mr. Moonlight, Bobby Ryan's children, Bobby and and Michelle, you get to know these people during during a trial, you know, that goes on for months on end. And I remember after Patrick Quirk was convicted of murdering Bobby Ryan following this massive trial before the Central Criminal Court, I was doing a piece with the local radio station, uh, Tip FM. And I did a piece and I was talking about the victim impact statements and and Bobby Ryan Jr., the victim's son, pulled over his car and he texted me. 
and he said he had to pull over the car because he was he was he was crying so hard and I won't I won't reveal word for word what he said to me because you know it was private but he was he was so kind um about the coverage about the way that the press had handled that very difficult trial and that very difficult time I think Irish journalists are respectful when it comes to these kind of things you mightn't get that same level of respect for privacy elsewhere but it's those little moments that make it all worthwhile yeah uh, uh, one of the co- topics that interests me about this area is the concept or or inexplicable word that known as evil, and I, I wonder if you've ever con- pondered that word yourself. I'm sure you have. Um, in the context of what you do, have you ever sat in a court and gone, you know what? I think I might be. I don't know what it is, but I think I'm in the presence of it today. What what uh, what what we might describe as evil, or you might think, do you know what? There's no such thing as evil. There's just people who end up doing things and I don't know why they do them or they could be mentally ill or mm-hmm. it could be. But have you ever thought about that and said if it is evil or have you ever have you ever thought about that word in your mind and gone, have I met evil? Have I thought about it? Have I seen it? Is it evil? What is this stuff that they, that people do? Yeah, it's it's the eternal question, isn't it? It's, I suppose, the reason people are so fascinated by the criminal mind is that it's very hard to understand. Mm. It's very, very hard, even sitting through these cases mm. day in, day out, it's very, very hard to climb into their shoes and figure out what drives them to do what they do. And I have absolutely um, been in the presence of pure evil you know Mick O'Toole has all of my colleagues on the coalface of these stories have been in the presence of evil and it will absolutely shake you to your core and you will spend the rest of your life trying to figure out why people do what they do I mean what drives two 13 year old boys to kill a 14 year old girl for no other reason than they wanted to kill somebody I mean Try get your head around that. Um, it's impossible to understand, especially since by the age of 13, we have a very, very, very strong level of moral compass in, in terms of how we will eventually end up. It's, mm-hmm. it's 90% there. It could, I don't know if it's 80% there, but it's close. You know, you can't just go, I know legally they're a minor, but like, let's face it, morally understanding what you're doing, you have complete knowledge of what murder is, the value of life, siblings, mothers, fathers, mm-hmm. uh, Pets, for God's sake, we all know it. By the time you're 13, how can you, you know, it's... The mind, the mind boggles and I try not to spend too much time thinking about it because I don't think you'd sleep at night if you did. But I suppose when you're covering these cases, and I'm not talking specifically about Anna Kriegel's case here, but when you at least see the family getting some sort of justice... Do you know, mm. like it would be a very, very cruel world if they were denied that much. I mean, when people come out and they don't always do it, but sometimes they want to come out and they want to speak to the media or the recurring theme in a victim impact statement when somebody is talking about a sentence, for example, responding to a sentence that's been handed down. I mean, inevitably, they're going to say no sentence will bring our loved one back. Do you know? Uh, sorry, if I can ask your opinion on this, then actually, I don't. You can choose. You can sidestep the question if you like. Because some, some, sometimes, if I'm asking you a question, I'm not sure how far you might like to go on it because uh, there are areas you might not, not like to comment. But do you have any um, interest in the, the concept of sentencing in Ireland? Is that something you can comment on yourself? Absolutely. Yeah, the you first 
it's it's interesting you ask the question because the first season of our podcast Inside the Crime focuses on a dreadful story a mother and her two daughters who were murdered in Kilkenny many years ago okay but wider than that we look at the sentencing regime in Ireland okay okay so we go into it in depth we look at how people in the UK are treated when they take three lives we look at how people in the United States um, are sentenced when they take three lives mm. And obviously we look at what happens here in Ireland and it was a fascinating insight. I do think everybody deserves a second chance, okay? Mm -hmm. And I do agree with the fundamental pillars of sentencing in that the main objective is to rehabilitate somebody. But I still do think that sentences for serious crimes in this country are too soft and too lenient. The average sentence that a lifer will spend behind bars is about 20. Now, you know, our lawmakers will argue that they can be taken back into prison to serve the rest of their sentence at any given time. It is essentially a life sentence that hangs over their head. Is that right? Yeah, I didn't know But that. there are some crimes and some criminals that do, in my opinion, deserve to spend the rest of their life behind bars because you have to think about the people that are left behind. Victims and their families are often and forgotten about in the Irish justice system and that's one of the reasons that I do what I do is shining a light and giving them a platform to tell their stories Mm. you know Sharon Whelan and her two daughters Zara and Nadia who were brutally murdered down in Kilkenny Mm. you know I sat across from her parents Nancy and Christy over a cup of tea they will never ever get over what happened to their daughter and their beautiful granddaughters they're the ones serving a life sentence so they can't get their head around how the man responsible for all that could possibly get a second chance yeah. at life well, What about the concept of the death penalty Frank and and I mean it's probably from at least two perspectives so one perspective is de- the death penalty as a um, as a sentence uh, or a conviction or crim- a criminal sentence for doing something and the second thing is the death penalty um, which is, of course, very cruel and maybe very medieval in its in its own way. But the death sentence as as a as a deterrent, as as well. So, in other words, you know, the idea that if a society said there is a potential death sentence, in other words, even if you had it on the statute books, it, it you know, I'm just guessing, it could mm-hmm. possibly have a thing, a, a, an effect on 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 people who go. You could actually be die for doing this if. Do you know what? When it comes to the most serious crimes, and I'm talking about murder in particular here, I don't think there is a deterrent that would stop somebody doing what they're going to do in the heat of the moment. Mm -hmm. Gangland crime is different. You know, many people who get involved in organised crime live by the sword and die by the sword. They take a life for money. They take a life for drugs. They take a life for revenge. There are so many different types of murder, so many different motives, none of which a jury will ever be concerned about, by the way, because it doesn't matter why you killed somebody. Mm -hmm. You know, it just matters who was was responsible. I don't agree with 
the death penalty yeah. even in the most serious of cases um, for lots of reasons personally I actually think to spend the rest of your life behind bars to have your freedom taken yeah. is a tougher penalty than have your life I'd probably agree taken with you. Yeah. you know I know which one I would choose yeah. if, if, it, if it ever came yeah. down to it um, but certainly when it comes to the Irish justice system and I do really like the Minister for Justice Helen McEntee I do really think um, she supports victims she listens to them and she takes everyone's opinions into account but I still do think that the system is too light and there are right. there are there are many shortcomings which in fairness to her she is trying to address take for example in other jurisdictions and this is something we go into in a lot more detail in season one of the podcast um, where some judges have discretion when it comes to handing down minimum tariffs so in Ireland if you are convicted of murder it's a life sentence away you go the parole board takes over you're going to spend at least 12 years behind bars before you can be eligible for parole the average again is about 20 years whereas in the UK and in other jurisdictions a judge can act and can actually look at it and go do you know what this is so bad that I'm going to put a minimum tariff on this you are not going to be eligible for parole until X amount because of the circumstances of this case judges don't have that discretion here in Ireland but I do know Minister McEntee is looking into it Hmm. Okay. Um, do you know there's callers that listen to this show every so often, right? Yes. So, and it's it's funny because we changed the tone of the show, and it's such a deep and affecting area that you talk about. I think Matt Cooper is he's dry, he's he's in a taxi on the way home, and he wants to he wants to call in. Say hello to Matt. Matt, how are you? Hi Frank, how are you? Good, good, good. How come you never do any of these colour pieces with me? You're spilling your guts out to Mario in there and it's all just straight down the line rubbish with me. Ah, come on Matt. Well, come on now Matt. I, th- well, I thought we had an understanding. An understanding, yeah, but I mean, uh, I'm listening to this, I find it riveting. Black and white, black and white on the last word and all the colours saved for Mario. Well, why don't we just, we could have done it, or I don't know, another time you could have come on and this is absolutely amazing stuff. I didn't know anything about this. I have a second proposition for you as well, Frank Greeny. One. Go ahead. Why do I call you by your two names all the time? <laughs> well, do you know what? It's funny. I've actually been called worse, Matt. Yes, um, Frank Greeny. Um, a presenter who will go unnamed uh, once called me Frank Granny. Uh, right. th- that was that was the worst one. You get it right 50% of the time and yeah. that's all I can ask for. Right. And that's from the guy that per- called her Mary J. Bilge. But anyway, um, I wanted to know. <laughs> look, Frank, something dawned on me. I have five kids, as you know. That's a lot of school fees. I was wondering if, um, you know, I have contacts, Cork Opera House, etc., etc. Do you ever think of taking it on the road? Me and you? No, oh, welcome to the Cork Opera House. Frank Greeny, good evening. Let's do it, yeah. I don't see why not, yeah. I think we could clean up out there. I think so. Although although Cork is a very safe town, you know, it's the same as my own hometown of Galway. There's not much crime going yeah, on there. So I know it's... a few browsers down there. <laughs> I bet you do. <laughs> oh, organised crime down there we can all, what do you think you call it organised you, 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 you line it. them up and we'll take this show on the road why do you Absolutely. think they call it organised crime because it's capable of being organised I can manage that Frank Greedy good luck see you Matt oh wow that's brilliant actually it's probably a good idea that you two go on the road um, tell us about season two of uh, Inside the Crime podcast you have a very interesting um uh, case here, which uh, some of the Irish people will be associ- will be uh, familiar with. I certainly was because I saw a very interesting documentary made by Bill Hughes last year about Vincent Hanley. Vincent Hanley being, of course, the one of the first um, kind of uh, gay um, uh, jocks on Radio Two, 
and uh, well we don't know if he's one of the first gay but he was one of the worst we, we found out that he was gay yeah and um, a wonderful character uh, brilliant DJ and of course he is he's involved in this case indirectly as well tell us about this case Frank so this is an unsolved murder and it focuses on a man called Charles Self who was um, an openly gay man in Dublin in 1982 which was a fairly hostile time yeah. and place for gay people it because it's hard to believe it now but homosexuality and what an awful word that is by the way and mm. the only reason I use it because that was the word that was in the law books at the time it was illegal well it wasn't illegal per se but the act of homosexuality you know sex between two consenting men was illegal and could see you thrown in jail Charles Self was an openly gay man he worked as a set designer on the Late Late Show on RTE he lived with Vincent Handley in a muse in Monkstown in South Dublin and in the early hours of the 21st of January 1982 he was brutally murdered he was strangled he was stabbed for 14 times, six of those stab wounds were so ferocious they transfixed his body, they went straight through. Um, and to this day, we still don't know who his killer is. We don't, no. No, we don't. And the funny thing is, and we go through it in the podcast series, is there were so many clues left behind by whoever did it. So many leads, we pull at the threads of a lot of the evidence that was presented at the time. And also we asked the question, and it was a question that was asked at the time, but nobody got an answer. And maybe, you know, with the passage of time, it might be a little bit more comfortable to talk about these things. But the fact that Charles Self was an openly gay man, there was concern that his investigation, that the investigation didn't, you know, really take his case as seriously as they would have if he was a straight man. There were also Mm. allegations that up to 1,500 men, okay, were gay men, were taken in for questioning after Charles Self was murdered. Many of them didn't know Charles, had no information to offer the Gardaí. And within the gay community, you know, the chatter got louder about the line of questioning. They Mm. were asking who you were sleeping with Mm. and give me the names of these people, they were taking fingerprints, they were taking photographs, they were essentially treating them as suspects. And there was a real concern that they were building a gay dossier. You know, again, homosexuality was criminalised in 1982. It would be another 11 years before it was yeah. decriminalised. Um, there are so many strands to this story. It has been an honour and a privilege to get to know Charles through those who knew him best, who miss him dearly. He was a cultured man, wasn't he? He really was. He was a very interesting guy. And mm. and again, it's the it's the beauty of what we do is you're getting this 3D picture of somebody through their loved ones, you know. Um, uh, Christine Falls, a friend of his, Bill Maher, another friend of his, Alan Farkerson, who worked with him in RTE. They've all given up their time and they've been very generous with their memories. And it must be very difficult for them to share those memories all these years on because it's essentially re-traumatising them but there is a greater purpose to all this we are hopeful that 40 years on somebody out there knows somebody something that might lead the Gardaí on a path that will you know solve this as yet unsolved crime it's 40 years ago but the time like Ireland in 2022 isn't perfect and there are still 
people in the gay community that will feel marginalised and excluded from Irish society. But back in 1982, I have no doubt there were people that were fearful of coming forward, fearful of being prosecuted for being gay. And if we can appeal to those people, maybe jog somebody's memory, appeal to a guilty conscience, then that would be great because... Yeah. Charles didn't strike me as somebody who attracted any enemies. Mm. He wouldn't hurt a fly. He was funny. He was sociable. He was very, very talented at what mm. he did. He worked with Gay Byrne, who paid homage to him and tribute to him mm. after he passed away. What happened to him was truly shocking. And what's even more shocking is that all these years on, we don't know what happened to him. Mm-hmm. And this, of course, is the interesting thing about what you do and 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 and. The, the, the stuff that the other podcasts that are also crime podcasts do is they, they relitigate, they reinvestigate, they relive, they, they, they tell a great story. But also there is the outside chance that they may make a difference, as mm-hmm. you say, that something actually may come of it, which makes it a, a live p- possibility. A kind of... Uh... You've hit the nail on the head there. That That's exactly what we try to achieve with Inside the Crime because as... As, as, as much as people love true crime, we don't want to tell true crime stories without a greater purpose. Because what you're doing when you tell these stories is re-traumatising people like Bill Mark, Christine Falls, Alan Farkerson, you know, and, and just telling the story for the sake of it, you know, in our minds isn't good enough. So we are very strict when it comes to selecting stories. The last time it was, you know, we were shining. So that a light. it's not just, if you like, voyeurism, that it's yes. offering a public service as well or a potential use. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we have set up a, a dedicated email account for people who may be reluctant to go to the guards for whatever reason. What is the email? The email is inside the crime at newstalk.com. People can find me through my socials. um, But equally, I mean, their first port of call should be on Garda Siakana and there is a confidential line 1800 But that is the whole purpose of this is we are confident. We have spoken to guards who are confident that there are people out there that know something. And the funny thing is, Mario, like covering these cases over the years, it's often the smallest detail that somebody might be thinking means nothing, is insignificant. Yeah. Ah, why would I bother them with that? But often it's that small little nugget that unlocks the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Okay. Okay. Very good. Um, listen, on a on a lighter note, right? Um, you know, uh, this is a, a you're obviously this is a very uh, job that con- consumes not only your your energy but but your emotions as well, and you spend a lot of time uh, writing about it, thinking about it, um, you know, talking to people, interviewing people, and and about it. But 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 you also have another life. You 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 own a restaurant, which we mm-hmm. talked about, Bowtown. It's called. Yes. A bow, presumably, to do with cow. Correct. And, yes. um, and, and it's in Galway. That's right. And, and this was yeah. like years ago. This was five years ago. Okay. So um, my best friend and I uh, decided to open a restaurant, well, many years ago now because we opened our doors five years ago. But this was something that David Fitzpatrick and I, um, you know, would have often it was one of those conversations that do you have those conversations with your mate you know mm-hmm. over a pint and it's like 
we could do this. You know, we could open a restaurant. Yeah. We could open a bar. Blah blah blah. <laughs> and y- and you used to frequently have this conversation. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the two why of us a worked in. Though? Oh, because you worked in catering. We and stuff, we yeah. both worked in hospitality. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah so um, bars and restaurants are around okay. Galway and elsewhere. You so, could have your own place. Yeah. Abs- absolutely. Why not? But you're kind of like you're having those conversations over the years on holidays over a couple of gargles, and you're thinking. These, this is pipe dream stuff like nothing's going to happen and then David found a, a unit um, on Dominic Street in Galway and I don't know how familiar you are with Galway but it's a beautiful part of the and city and did he call you out of the blue and say listen I found I a place I don't have the right to do this but yeah. I found a place and you said was your was hold your, on a you second mean, have you been you drinking because <laughs> yeah. you, you hadn't prepared for this no I you mean literally went, I found a place yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. You're like and that boy and girl in the EBS advert. She's running down and she sees the house. And she yes, goes, I it was, found it. <laughs> it was just like that. And I went down and um, this is a beautiful unit now. It wasn't so much when I went to look at it first. It was derelict. It was in need of an awful lot of love. David would have been far more of an expert than I was at the time. I went in there kicking walls in the same way that you'd kick a tyre, you know, looking at a used car, not really knowing what that's supposed to tell you. Mm -hmm. I mean, the long and the short of it is we thought we'd be open in six months. We had a budget and we thought that we'd get our doors open. The reality is it took us two years to get the doors open. We blew our budget four or five times over. It took absolutely everything out of us but one of the sweetest moments in my life was that day when our first customer walked in the door Um, you have this image in your head I mean we'd been building up to it for so long and you have this image in your head of customers fighting to get in queues snaking around the corner we opened the doors at six o'clock and tumbleweed passed Mm. through the restaurant floor And you start to get a little bit worried and a little bit panicked. I mean, friends of ours and loved ones were telling us all along the way, get out of this. This is madness. This isn't going to work. And we didn't believe them. But at one point, when you see that tumbleweed going past your Mm. feet into the kitchen, you think, yeah, maybe this wasn't the best idea. And then that customer came in. I'll never forget him. He came in on his own. He sat down at table one, which is best seat in the house. It's right <laughs> by the window. And, you know, you can watch the world go by. Yeah. And he sat there and I with a shaky hand, yeah. brought a menu down, a menu that I had designed and yeah. I placed it in front of him and he placed his order. And he must have thought I've walked into the strangest place in the yeah. world because we were just gawking at him. Yeah. And thankfully, I mean, there was a steady stream of, yeah. of customers thereafter. And, and look, right. it's been it's been it's been a journey. It's been a difficult few years. Yeah. We seem to have gone from crisis to yes. crisis, but we're still there. We're punching above our weight. We're still fighting when many have unfortunately had to close yeah. their doors. It's the restaurant business oh, yeah. is one of the hardest businesses. What margins does the restaurant business work off, Frank? They are so incredibly tight and if it wasn't for David Fitzpatrick and I'll give him a shout out because if it wasn't for David Fitzpatrick we would be in prison right now we <laughs> doing crime reports on yourself would, yeah yeah I don't know who Matt would have to get yeah. on the show to talk about this but I would definitely be in the dock Frank We'd I be. believe you're in the clanger <laughs> down there Yes, Matt, the reception isn't great here, but hang with me. Um, we, we would definitely be in a lot of trouble because he knew how much a squirt of detergent cost, mm. you know, and he would keep an eye on all of those so, things. So bow, cow, and so oh, you yes. serve meat, you serve burgers. Is it kind of gourmet burgers, just good burgers, really up, uh, sorry, sorry, up, up, um, up market 
uh, comf- nice food, comfort food, is a- it? A- absolutely. Everything made, handmade on site. Mm. You know, we're really passionate about what we yeah. do. And like, you know, we're talking earlier about, um, you know, the dreadful stuff that I cover day to day. And, mm. you know, one of the ways that I get out of my head after a tough day is cooking. I love to cook, oh, okay. which is which is funny because I remember I moved out of the family home when I was about 18 years yeah. of age. And I remember after like spending a couple of weeks eating McDonald's uh, every other day, mm. I remember ringing my mother and asking her to boil a spud. I mean, mm. I literally had no skills. Mm. And here I am now, you know, like last summer, for example, I would have spent a lot of time in the kitchen chefing because of COVID. People were constantly out sick or it was hard to find staff. And I would be there on a Friday, Saturday evening at the pass slinging out the burgers. <laughs> I, it's a joy. I love it. It is a really, really tough job. Yeah. It is a really hard job. People yes. don't realise how oh, yeah. hard hospitality is. Who, um, if, I, if I owned a restaurant, I would always be going, if you and me owned a restaurant, Cabrina, we'd be texting each other every day, go, anybody of note come in last night? Who came in? <laughs> who's, who's, who, anybody famous come into your restaurant or well known? Um, oh God, must, the me, answer to that must be yes. You've put me on the spot there. Do you know I remember Brian O'Driscoll serving, loves a burger. I, we, we get the conic lads are in uh, often enough. Do you know who is in, all right? This is, this is a this is a funny story. I probably shouldn't share it, but I will. Um, Sean O'Rourke uh, oh, yeah. w- was in one day. All right, pro- before Golfgate or after it? This was well before Golfgate. Yeah, right. yeah. So Sean O'Rourke, Bowgate, Bowdowngate. <laughs> Sean was in uh, the restaurant, and um, I was looking after him. I was I was working on the floor, and it must have been maybe the first or second summer that we were open. And I was I was I was serving him, and uh, took his order. Everything was fine. VIP status, you know. This is Sean O'Rourke, and um, VIP in my world. Most yeah. of the people on the floor didn't know who that no, he was. Exactly. But he'd be a big. He's a big figure, isn't he? Yeah. yeah in journalism, uh, absolutely. And um, so everything was fine. And at the end of his meal would you like anything else lads and he goes no no we're all good just a bit actually do you know what and he asked uh, whoever he was with do you fancy a coffee and he goes yeah my heart sank and do you know what two cappuccinos and I thought, oh no problem our coffee machine was on the blink it was an ornament it was gathering dust <laughs> but I didn't want to tell Sean work that I couldn't make him a coffee mm. so I was like no problem no problem no problem so I took two of our mugs and I went across the road I had to sneak past him with these <laughs> mugs and I went across the road to our friends in Arabica across, yeah. uh, across the road I went and throws on two cappuccinos there and put them in our mugs <laughs> she was like right um, Frank's on the gargle again it's okay, one o'clock yeah. in the afternoon and I, I rolled across and uh, I gave Sean his um, his <laughs> cappuccino. Um, mm. We've had look, we've had we've had lots of people walking through the doors at the restaurant, and the people that I love getting in there the most are the families. Mm. Okay, like it's incredible to see like that we can cater for everybody. And I sound like this is a, this is a, a pitch on you know the airways down in Galway, whatever, like advertising for the restaurant, but like. There are some places where you can go in and you can see, okay, this is a very defined demo. You know, young people, students only come here. What we think we achieve really well is it's for everyone. Like, and it's not that unusual to see David and I sitting down at a table shooting the breeze with mm. somebody. People are fascinated by the story because we didn't just roll in there with a big wheelbarrow no. full of cash and say, build us a restaurant. Oh God, no, yeah. Do you know, like David in particular was on his hands and knees putting down floors and putting up walls. And Well, the, the, the president of Ireland is on the line. I can't believe it. He rings in sometimes. Just Michael say, say hello D. to him. Michael Mr. D. Hello, Mr. President. Yes, indeed. The protocol. Hello, Frank. I am a great admirer. Sorry. 
of your court reports with Matt Cooper. Wonderful stuff. I'm, 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 it's just, I want to find him just I'm sitting beside the radio. And it's like, it's just, I'm transfixed by your wonderful, empathetic delivery. But I may also say, I, I, I'm quite troubled by this. Because I can't believe you didn't know that I, I went into Bowtown. Michael D. Myself and the aide de camp. No. I had a hunger knock and a sugar knock. And I said, aide de camp, get me somewhere fast. And he went, there's only one place for you. Bowtown. <laughs> and then we went and I had your, what is it, your one half? It's a the smoky bow, it's is the that the one you had? The smoky bow, that yeah. is the one I had. And I had it with pickle. And I had it with ketchup. And Good I man. had it with mustard. Good man. And it was delicious. Good man. And your dirty fries as well, I had them as well. They filthy. were particularly dirty the day you were in, filthy. Mr. President. Absolutely filthy. <laughs> and I'm telling you, I didn't need any cappuccino afterwards like O'Rourke. But um, a wonderful feed I had. Uh, do you know, well, I yes. have you on the line, yes. Mr. President, I have a bone to pick with Go you. On. I don't know if you remember this, but um, when you were your very first presidential election campaign, clearly yes. successful, and I asked you that lazy question that everybody was asking at the time, and I yes. asked you, did you think the voters would take your age into account and you challenged me to a race do you remember that yes I do and was it a foot race it was and you beat me by a nose did I you did you did I'm not surprised big nose in fairness there wasn't much well I'm exceedingly quick on my feet (laughs) and and still am to this day but well done Frank and wonderful and uh, I shall return to Bowtown 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 that's it Bowtown that's the one. That's it. Thank you, Frank. Thank you, Mr. President. Brilliant. Great Very to hear. respectful. Great to hear you from were Michael great with him. Uh, An honorary Galway man. Um, That's why he was there, I think. Yeah. He was doing some sociology. Yeah, looking we've, up some sociology. We've, um, we've claimed Michael D as our own. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah, he is. He is, yeah. Um, another caller on the line is... Do you know, this is a great call. Loads of people, because sometimes there's not many callers, but loads of people have actually asked to call into you. Pat Kenny's on the oh, line. Pat. Say hello to Pat. Hello, pal. Pat, how's it going? Hi, Frank. PK here. I absolutely love your work. I have the mind of a forensic scientist myself, and I love a bit of crime. Um, I love all the gory details. My favourite word uh, in passing is entrails. I love entrails. What's your favourite crime word? My favourite crime word? Ooh, guilty. Guilty? Guilty. That's great. I like that one. But listen, tell me, what's your favourite program or film associated with the crime game fascinated ooh The Departed would be up there for sure cool yeah I like great that. show I like Silence of the Lambs <laughs> the transformational aspect from pupae into butterfly <laughs> and how Buffalo Bill goes about nabbing his prey it really is rather <laughs> intoxicating <laughs> I feel like a bit of a serial killer myself <laughs> Roaming the prairies of Dawkey. Oh, Pat, I'm going to have to give you a moment there, but it sounds like you'll find yourself in the dock. You carry this on. I once ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. Census taker in Dawkey. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus, Pat, you're sick. Pat, he's gone. I think he's gone. Oh, always, always lovely to hear from Pat. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Imagine if he was a serial killer. Well, look. Wouldn't that be um? Wouldn't that be an interesting story to cover? A revelation. Yeah, a revelation. The killer. Imagine Frank Greeny's voice. The killer all along was the well-known broadcaster Pat Kenny. <laughs> that would be a real one for the books. What would Pat's? What would Pat's um, pseudonym be? What would his crime name be? Oh God! Well, it would be coincidental if he killed them with a plank. But uh, that would. That would <laughs> 
<laughs> that would be too work. obvious, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would be too obvious. Your Honour, he murdered them with the plank. <laughs> yeah. The plank. The yeah. court heard he was bludgeoned to death. So with listen, a plank. season two of Inside the Crime podcast um, follows season one, which was you, you said involved sentencing and everything, and talks about sentencing. And this season two involves itself with the, with, with the Charles self mm-hmm. uh, murder. Fantastic, Frank. Um, it's been a real pleasure having you on, and um, and 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 very enlightening as well. And thank you for agreeing to come on the podcast. Not at all. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure, Mario. And my thanks to Frank Greeny for being my guest on this week's Mario Rosenstock podcast. Um, thanks to all of you for listening. Um, please mention the podcast to one other person if you can. That's all I ask. You can send me a message personally to MarioRosenstock at gmail.com. I read them all. I get back to nearly all of them. I'm also on Twitter um, at GiftGrubMario and Instagram and Facebook. Check me out there and you'll get regular updates on this podcast. Okay, see you same time, same place next week. Bye.